Open up to Acts 13. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses this morning. While you're turning there, I'm going to I'm going to pray. Father, right now we just want to pause and ask, um, just as the title of this sermon is, Father, the, the theme of this text, Father, that this service would be by your Spirit. It's so clear, the more I look in Scripture, everywhere we turn, it's clearly stated that apart from you, we can do nothing. And you are with us. By your spirit, Lord, it is your spirit by whom we can even pray. It is your spirit by whom we are built up in our inner man. It's by your spirit that we have words to speak. Fathers, we just sang in that song. It was by your spirit and the glorious working of the power of God that you raised Christ from the dead. Because there is power in his name. It is by Christ and his spirit that we can be set free from all those things the scripture says that we could not be in the law. Not only have you done powerful works for us, you continue to do powerful works for us. Father, keep us in a posture of faith because you've given us your spirit as the great administrator, the great leader, the great director of your body, the church. He is our life. He is our voice. He is the one who equips us for ministry. And our time is useless, Father, apart from him now. Help us to see our great need for dependence on him. And Father, teach us of the great things that you do when we do depend on him. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you a question, what is the leading cause of the death of a church? What would you say? Now, I don't want you to shout it out necessarily. You can. Some would probably say it's sin. Sin is the leading cause of death in a church. Some might say that it's bad theology. True. Some might say it's been infiltrated by false teaching. You might say it's worldliness. And all those, in one sense, are not wrong. But they don't kill a church. They are hindrances to the church. And every church at some point will face sin, false teaching, worldliness, false teachers. Every church is, is going to face this. But the death of a church, those things are not sufficient to bring about. Because it is the Holy Spirit who can overcome every one of those in the church. If you go read Revelation, for instance, chapters 2 and 3, there's seven churches mentioned there. And every single one of those churches mentioned there was facing one of those answers I gave. But every single one of those churches had the opportunity to repent and overcome them. And in every single church, all seven, there's one statement that's common to each. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The death of a church comes 
when a church stops listening to the Spirit of God. That's when death comes. Every church is told this. Every church is warned of this. Failure to listen to the Spirit's instruction and to follow is what will lead to the death of any church. Doesn't matter which church. You can look at church history and great denominations and movement have started and begun in His Spirit. Definite works of God have broken out all throughout church history and many of them have been hijacked, veered, off the course, whatever, because they stopped walking in the Spirit. There's an old pastor named G.F. Tofel who wrote a very influential book called The Work of the Holy Spirit in Man. He illustrated this point this way. He said, when the Holy Spirit withdraws from a church, he sometimes allows the forms which he has created to remain. The oil is exhausted, but the lamp is still there. Prayer is offered and the Bible is read. Church going is not given up. And to a certain degree, the service may be enjoyed. In a word, religious habits are preserved, and like the corpses found at Pompeii, which were in a perfect state of preservation, and in the very position in which death had preserved them, yet they were reduced to ashes when contacted with the air. So it is that with the blast of trials or of temptation or of final judgment, these will destroy these once spiritual bodies. Why is it that so many individuals, so many churches, one day wake up and find that God is no longer there? How does that happen? It's usually not an overnight process. Usually you wake up one day and you're like Samson. You don't know that the Spirit of God has departed from you. And all of your strength and power to overcome is gone. I don't want to end on that note because our passage is not a sour note. The equal is true. Uh, Opposite of that. The opposite is equally true. Sorry. Those churches who do continue to, to persevere and walk by the Spirit of God at every stage, they will be overcoming. They will be tremendous in fruit bearing. And they will experience both the power and presence of God continually in their ministry. At this point in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, we're, we're entering a new field. The church up to this point has been persevering in sharing the gospel, but pretty locally. They've now traveled as far as Antioch and Syria, which is not a small distance. But God is about to do a work where He's taking the gospel far beyond those reaches. And it's going to require special calling, special preparation, special work. It's the first missionary journey of Paul. He had three major ones, this being the first. It lasted somewhere between 46 and 47 AD, about a year and a half or so. We're not going to focus, however, on all the locations he visited, all the facts this morning. They're important, but there's an even greater truth more important than that, and it's threaded throughout our 12 verses this morning. And it is the Spirit of God. So let's open up to Acts 13. I want to read the passage and summarize this this account for us. Because you can take these words 
and the circumstances and situation that Paul encountered. And you can literally insert yourself in today. Might be a missionary trip to uh, Ghana or wherever you go. It might be a mission opportunity here that you have with coworkers, with family. It might be persecution you're suffering at the hands of a false teacher. You literally can interchange the facts of this story for your circumstance, but the, the truths we're going to look at are constant throughout. In every ministry, every age of the church, they must be. So let's look real quickly, verses 1 through 12, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Luke writes this, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was nicknamed Black, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, that's John Mark, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, which means magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So let me summarize some of these facts, because I don't want to get distracted with the, the facts of this. It's important to understand the context in which the truths we're going to look at are embedded. This is the first missionary team. Barnabas, Saul, and we're told that John Mark accompanied him, though next week we'll, actually next week, uh, I'll announce that in a minute. My brother-in-law is going to be preaching next week, so he's coming in town to visit. The week after that, we'll cover that. John Mark left them. The location point by which they're starting is the island of Cyprus. They're in Antioch right now, and the first location they're sailing off to is Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. We're told in Acts 4 that this is the home native land of Barnabas. So it's fitting that this is where they should start. Barnabas, who we did a character study on briefly, so influential and powerful in the early church, I think it's a fitting testament that they're starting in the island of Cyprus. Very cool expression of the grace of God. They actually set sail out of the, uh, the port of Seleucia, which is still present today. You can see the ruins of this today and sent off to the island of Cyprus. They had made, we're not told too much about 
Their travel, Cyprus is a fairly large island. They make it through the entire island preaching the gospel. And we can probably infer that many converts were made, given the history of conversions up to this point. But they make it through the entire island, proclaim the word of God, first in the synagogues. This will become the habit of Paul. As we go through Acts, you'll notice this habit. He would always go to the Jews first. He'd preach in their synagogues. Some would believe, but most of the time they rejected Paul's message, so he turned to the Gentiles. But he'd always take the gospel first to the Jews. After going through the entire island, they come to the, the city of Paphos, which was the capital. And they meet a certain man there who was a false teacher. And he was a Jewish false teacher. This is interesting because Jewish uh, mysticism and, and uh, magicians like this were very frowned upon and shunned within the Jewish community. Perhaps that's why he's on Cyprus. I don't know. But they meet a Jewish false teacher. And they also meet the man Sergius Paulus who is said to be the proconsul. The proconsul is the leading ruler of this island. It was a, it was a senatorial province of Rome. So this is a very high position man. He was said to be a man of intelligence, and yet this false teacher had his ear. And we see this false teacher trying to bait him away from the truth. We're also told in this chapter, in verse 9, that Saul, who was also called Paul, from here on out, will know him as Paul. Paul was Saul's Greek name. In fact, his whole name was probably Saul Paulus similar to Sergia, Sergius Paulus. Um, but Paul was his Greek name, and that's how he will become known, being the, uh, the apostle to the Gentile world. Okay? So, those are the facts we're going to look at that our truths are embedded in. And mainly the interaction between this false teacher and Sergius Paulus. But there's some things that are so important for us to notice before they ever get out on their first missionary journey that I want to focus on. And it's, it's not explicit in our text, however, it's there. First of all, there was a time of preparation before Saul, Barnabas, John Mark, and the rest, maybe who joined them, were sent out. I told you that the, the year is probably 46, 47 A.D. That means the church is now about 14 years old. Why so long? From the very beginning, even when Jesus was preaching the gospel, he constantly mentioned that the gospel will go to all nations. When he commissioned Saul in Acts chapter 9, he told Saul, you will bear my name before the Gentile world. When Saul was almost killed in Jerusalem, he told Saul, get out. They're not going to receive your testimony. And I'm sending you to the Gentiles. But years of time passed. It's not that they were wasting time. They were active. They were active locally. But there's some very important things in regard to missions, in regard to serving the Lord, that we got to consider. And it's the time well spent. Preparation. We were told, if you look... In verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. This gives us an insight into the habits of the church. This is, uh, this is very interesting, in fact. They had made it a practice, and you can see this all through the book of Acts, to make prayer 
worship, the gathering together, giving themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Remember Acts 2.42? These were the consistent habits of the church. They had devoted themselves to these practices, these spiritual disciplines. So the first point to note is, church, there will never be major works of God until we've given ourselves for a season to the spiritual disciplines of God. This, I think, is actually why most churches never go anywhere and never do any great thing. Because they're not even giving themselves to the Lord in the spiritual disciplines. Acts 2.42 is so important. They continually devote themselves to prayer. They continually have given themselves to the Word of God. They continually give themselves in fellowship. And not just hanging out. They're building each other up. These were the disciplines for 14 years of the church. Before this first missionary journey ever came. In fact, the word worship, the ESV translates there... uh, The NASB, if you have the New American Standard, it says ministering to the Lord. That's more the idea. They were ministering to the Lord. They were, in other words, as Peter calls us a royal priesthood, they were performing their priestly duties to God. What they were focused on was Christ. They had been saved, they've been called out of the world, and we are here to worship Him. And that's what they've given themselves to. They'd made that break. Those are the habits up to this point in Acts. But also, we know that they've been enduring persecution. Much persecution has happened in the church at this point. And persecution, when you endure it, produces perseverance. Persecution in the Lord's economy for the church is always for our benefit. It always refines us. It always causes us to seek with greater fervency and zeal the Lord. And so persecution, when you don't resist it, has a good work in the church. And they've been enduring it for 14 years. And it's produced its work. They are going to need perseverance because Paul and Barnabas are going to the outer reaches of the world at this point where they would not have believers around them. If they didn't know how to stand in faith and endure persecution, they would fail when they get out on the mission field. The Lord allowed this season to prepare them. There's other considerations, though. Oops. There we go. And these are more preliminary. First, before I think missions can ever be effective, you've got to start with the basics. Someone actually must be a true convert to Christ. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And you've got to understand the Corinthian church in general. Paul is always, always dealing with that church falling into sin. Questioning his authority. Rebelling against his apostleship. Whatever it is. Misusing spiritual gifts. 2 Corinthians, I've said this before, is actually probably the fourth letter he's wrote to them. It's the second one we have. But he's written several letters to this church. And by the end of the second letter in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul writes this. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Many churches today probably get... A little squeamish when we talk about this in the church. 
But it has been the pattern in history that churches are full of the most unconverted people. They're full of the most religious people, but truly unconverted. This has been a problem in the, in the church throughout the history. In fact, we're going to look at a passage that Jesus actually warned of this. There will always be wheat and tares sown together. There will always be that. We're going to save that for later. Other things to consider in preparation is a consecration, literally a growth in holiness. Consecration means you've given yourself to the Lord. You're not still holding on to both the world and to Christ. A true consecration. You can see this pattern in type in the Old Testament for the priests. Before the priests would enter the temple to do their priestly service, they had to consecrate themselves, literally wash themselves and separate themselves for the service of God. They were consecrated fully to God. Before any missionary endeavor can happen, before we can bear any true fruit, powerful fruit in this way, church, we've got to be a consecrated people to God. Those things in the world that we hold to must be cut off. Consecration is a necessity. If you turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 3. Here's how Paul said it again to the Corinthian church. He said, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he's telling him at this point, look, you're infants in Christ, but you're worldly. You're carnal still. You're a worldly person. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. This is, again, why most churches never move past spiritual infancy. Because they're still holding on to the flesh. They still walk according to the flesh. They never consecrate themselves, break off those things that bind us to the world. They never allow the Spirit to do that deeper work of consecration and sanctification in our heart. There also must be obedience and faithfulness in the small things. This is the parable in Luke 16, verse 10 through 13. Jesus made it clear. He said, if you're faithful with a little, you'll also be faithful with much. And he will give you more. This is why I believe this time of preparation has been 14 years. They've been faithful locally with the small things. And what's the Spirit about to do? He's about to entrust them with a much larger, broader ministry. You've got to demonstrate obedience. You've got to demonstrate faithfulness. Paul said that of his own apostleship. We are stewards of the grace of God. And it is above all required of a steward that he is found faithful. He saw himself as a steward. And he'd proven his obedience and faithfulness in the small things. Now the Lord is opening up the greater ministry to him. There is also the need for obvious signs of growth in truth and in righteousness. This is so important, and I want you to understand this. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews real quick, Hebrews chapter 5. You've got to be careful as I make this point, because you can err one of two ways in thinking about this. One, you don't want to err on the side of legalism. Not every person in the body of Christ, when they come to faith, grows at the same rate or pace, right? Some will give themselves to the Lord, and boom, three months later, they're completely different. And that's fun to watch. Others might grow at a slower pace. Nonetheless, you don't want to give yourself to the other error, which is called antinomianism, which means this. Oh, obedience, righteousness, good works, those are irrelevant. I'm saved by grace. I can live how I want. 
No. There is always an expectation of growth for someone who claims to be a believer. This is why the problem facing the church today, people who sit in the church and have never grown in Christ, is a serious threat. There is always an expectation of growth. Whether it's 30, 60, or 100 fold, you will be growing if you're truly saved. Maybe not at the same pace as others, though. But Hebrews chapter 5 says it this way in verse 11. The writer says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though, listen to this, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see the expectation the writer had. By this time you ought to be teaching people, yet you still need to be taught the very basics of the faith. You should be teaching them and you don't know these. He's not saying they're lost, but he is saying you need to grow. Get out of your infancy. I would be shocked if my child remained an infant their whole life. I would be searching, what's wrong, doctor? Yet we don't take that attitude with people in the church. When they remain spiritual infants, we should be alarmed. What's wrong with your faith? Something's not clicking in you. You ought to be here at this point. So these are all preparatory things that are important to consider at this stage in the church's growth. They've had 14 years of practice and being built up. And now, though the Spirit had promised it long ago, now at last, He's moving toward this end. So here's the three main points, however, I want to consider today. First, the Holy Spirit sets people apart. Secondly, we're going to see the Holy Spirit sends us. And third, the Holy Spirit is our powerful helper on the field. At every stage in these first 12 verses, I think this is why Luke points the Holy Spirit out at each stage. Because without the Holy Spirit's help and presence, missions falls flat. The church falls flat. And we must consider these things. So first, the Holy Spirit setting apart. We read back in Acts chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit in verse 2, while they were fasting and worshiping or ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me... Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In a general sense, being set apart is the same for every believer. The Holy Spirit calls us out of the world and into fellowship with Him. He sets us apart. First Peter says, if you want to turn there real quick, I want to read this passage with you. First Peter chapter 2. I love this, this verse. It captures this entire idea. First Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 9. You are a chosen race. That's literally what set apart means. You are chosen out of the world. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The program of missions, guys, is this, that the Holy Spirit is given to the church as the administrator, the leader, the head of the church. And he sets the church apart out of the world and then sends the church back into the world to proclaim Christ. That's what Peter just said. You are his special people, his own possessions. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him back to the world. You who once were in darkness are now in light and you're sent back to the darkness to proclaim the light. That's the program of missions that the Holy Spirit is doing. That's what we're going to see through the rest of the book of Acts. Everywhere Paul goes, he brings the fragrance of Christ to them. Everywhere Paul went, he brought the knowledge of God and he proclaimed it. That's the program of missions. We've got to understand it. The program of missions is Christ-ocentric, the same as theology. The whole of theology, the whole of our study is about God. So it is with missions. So it is with worship. Every aspect of what we do as a church is focused on that. We proclaim the excellencies of Him. In fact, Luke wrote at the end of his gospel, he said this, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So it's important to understand what the Holy Spirit sets you and I apart to do. He sets us apart to be witnesses. That was what he started the book of Acts saying. You will be my witnesses. So why does he set you apart? To go be a witness of Jesus. All of us are included in that. In other words, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a witness. Yes, you are. And to continue thinking that way that you're not a witness is to be disobedient to what the Lord wants to do in you. You are a witness. And you are to be his witnesses. In other words, you're rebelling against the Holy Spirit's lead. So, missions is about Christ. We are set apart for Christ and His kingdom. In fact, Jesus said it very simply this way um, in the Gospel of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Right? We are set apart for Him and for His kingdom. Peter said essentially the same thing in the passage we just read. And I quoted to you the last point there. They were ministering to the Lord. They were set apart ministering to the Lord. How many times in worship services do you think about this fact in this way? What you do in singing, in, in encouraging one another, in sharing with someone, whatever you're doing, how many times do you consider that you're actually ministering to the Lord? I know you're ministering to people. But it's ministry to the Lord. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? Hey, if you give someone to drink, even to the smallest one, you've done it to me. It's ministry to the Lord. That's what Paul, or the Holy Spirit here in Luke, is telling us. It's a beautiful truth. But I want, want to make this point. You're going to talk about this in your small groups if you go. So... Let me get to my notes here. The task of the church is not to bring the world to Christ. That might sound weird for you. 
The task of the church is to bring Christ to the world. Here's the illustration. Throughout church history, those churches that aim to bring the world to Christ, what they have to do is to accommodate every single belief, every kind of religious worship, and it becomes a state kind of church. Much like you see Islam. A state-sponsored church. Much like you see Roman Catholicism. It becomes a dragnet for every evil thing. But when you bring Christ to the world, which is how the scriptures constantly talk about it, you are bringing the knowledge of Christ to the world. They listen, and in faith, when they respond, they're brought out of it. And so it keeps the church pure. It keeps it as the body of Christ. It keeps it separate, yet in the world, which is how the scripture says it. We are to bring Christ to the world. But in doing so, we bring Christ to the whole world. We bring Christ everywhere. As we quoted in Luke, this gospel will be preached in every nation. So these are some aspects generally in, in, in how the Spirit sets us apart for His kingdom. Let's look at specifically. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, we read that the work to which I have called them is why He's being called out. We read, or I quoted earlier, Acts 9.15, Carry my name before the Gentiles, Paul. You're going to carry my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. In Romans 1.1, Paul says this, that I have been set apart as an apostle from before time began. He said the same thing in Galatians 1.15, that I have been set apart in my mother's womb as an apostle of Christ. That's specific for Paul. You and I haven't been called to be apostles. So this is specific. In the administration of the church, the Holy Spirit has freedom to direct us into His will. He prepares us, and in preparing us, He sets us apart generally for those things that specifically He will call us to. Does that make sense? He will do the general work in the church of setting us apart, and He'll call you specifically to a task in it. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12, He equips you individually with spiritual gifts to do that work, and they vary. They're not the same. There's many gifts, one spirit. Many activities, one Lord. So you see how this works. There's generally truths in being set apart, true for everyone. Specifically, what is it that God has called you to do? I can't tell you that. That's part of the joy of discovering the church, by the way. Again, most of us never get there because we don't consecrate ourselves to it. But part of the joy of discovery is when you see, wow. Here's what God has called me to do. I had a garage sale yesterday. And a lady came who bought up all the blankets that we had left. She's like, cool. And then she began to tell me she's actually using them to send down to a ministry in Belize that we've, we know about, the Word at Work. And they rescue sex traffic women and house them in this compound. And they need blankets and stuff like that. So I ended up just giving her the blankets when I heard that. But what she started talking to me about was interesting. It was this point right here. She said, you know, I never knew about this ministry. I've gone to Belize now five times. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be going there. In fact, I told people I'm going to Belize. And they said, where's that? She said, I don't know, but I'm going. <laughs> but she was so excited to have discovered this unique ministry that God is calling her to. 
And she was talking to us about how everywhere she goes, she finds, finds these great deals on toys and blankets for this ministry. The Spirit leads her in it, and it's filled her heart with joy. That's for you to discover. She never saw herself as a missionary, but yet she is. Maybe you've never considered yourself in that light. Maybe it's because you've never allowed your heart to go there and be given to it. Maybe it's time you let the Lord use you in a way you never thought you could be used. Inactivity in the kingdom of God is disobedience to the king's command to seek first his kingdom. None of us as a child of God can sit idle. It is sin. But the cool thing is this. He's got works he's prepared beforehand, Ephesians tells us 2.10. Before the world was ever formed, he's got works for you to walk in. And he's set you apart to do it. And he's equipped you and gifted you to do it. He did it for Saul. He did it for Barnabas. He's done it through missionaries throughout every age of the church. And he will continue to do it until the age comes to an end. That's how he works. He sets apart. He prepares and then he sends out our next point. We're told in verse 4, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Luke is emphasizing the Spirit's divine prerogative and direction in what's going on in the church. It's been clear up to this point. But this is a major step forward in the program of missions. And he's emphasizing it again. The Spirit sets apart. The Spirit prepares. And the Spirit has sent these men out. This is an important truth for us to consider. Why? No doubt you guys have heard many people claim to have a word from God. Many people on TV claim to be speaking by the Spirit of God. With authority. How do you know? How do you know that the Holy Spirit has sent them or not? It says that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Was that an audible voice that the Spirit was saying? No. No, it's not. How do we know? Well, look at verse 1, and then we're going to tie it into verse 4. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and then he gives the whole list of them. Spirit of God gives spiritual gifts to the church. Some of those gifts are speaking gifts. Prophecy, teaching, tongues. Some of those gifts were gifts of knowledge and wisdom to discern and understand the truth and in, in word of God. How is the Spirit speaking to the church? He's speaking through the spiritual gifts in the people. It was these prophets speaking by the Spirit of God saying, Hey, Paul and Barnabas, the Spirit's calling you out. He's sending you somewhere. But what did they do? After they were told this message, verse 3 it says, After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. After the prophets and teachers spoke this word, the Holy Spirit set you apart to the work. They fasted, they sought the Lord, they prayed, and they were able to confirm the will of the Lord. And once they confirmed it, they laid their hands on them. Yes, that's what's going on. Then verse 4 Thus the Holy Spirit sent them out. He used the church of God. This is the proper working, by the way, church, of spiritual gifts. Most people freak out with prophecy. Not here. That is cool. It affirmed 
Prophecy, the spiritual gifts, by the way, never operate in isolation of the church. That's what's so dangerous about some of these false teachers on TV. If you challenge them with the Word of God according to something they said, what do they do? Condemn you. You have the Word of God to test what they say, though. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 14. The spirit of a prophet is subject to the other prophets in church. If someone gets up and says something, the other prophets of the church are to test it and to see, is this true? Is this of the Lord? That's the safeguard. This is the proper working of the spiritual gifts. It is so important. Now, I know probably where some of you are, because I know the background of most of you. <laughs> Prophecy is never talked about in most denominations, but it is a definite gift. In fact, it was the gift, Paul said, he wished every church had in Acts 14. Above all, desire that you can prophesy. Why? Because that is how the Lord speaks to the church. Now, I'm not talking about prophecy that's crazy, that you usually see of uh, people prophesying outlandish things that the Lord never promises in the Word. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about scriptural truths setting forth before the people of God. That's his true spirit of prophecy. So Paul and Barnabas in this missionary journey was definitely sent out by the authority of the Spirit, but it was confirmed by the church of God. This is so important. If we were to start supporting missionaries and we didn't have confidence that the Lord was truly sending those people, do we need to be sending them? No. When a missionary comes into our view for us to consider to support, what do we need to discern? One, that they're called. That this is something the Lord is doing in their life. Because if we send them out as a church and support them and they're not called, we're sending them to failure. The mission field is the most difficult place to go. And if they're not called of God, even if they're a spiritual person, they're going to wreck their faith. We must discern as a church and be in unity with the spirits leading in that person's life before we ever send someone out. That's how this passage works. It's so beautiful. I also want to point something else out. When we started the church, I taught through Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 3 and 4. In verse 11 and 13, Paul wrote... That the Spirit of God has given to the church first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, then pastors and teachers. Why? For the building up of the church for the work of ministry. Did anybody, by the way, catch that in this passage? There's an apostle in this group, Paul. There's prophets, all of them. There's teachers. There's evangelists. Paul has given the church these positions to equip us and lead us into the work of ministry. We see it illustrated right here. It's all right there. This is how it looks. He's given the church these people for our upbuilding. It's great, great joy to discern the will of God. Most people never experience this because they don't know how to discern and test the will of God. But let me tell you this, when you test the will of God like Romans 12 talks about, and you prove it, as it also says, you know with discernment what God's will is for you, there's so much joy in that. There's so much confidence to do what you're doing. Faith usually is taught as this blind, uh, kind of walk in the dark kind of faith. No! 
Faith is the assurance of things yet unseen. Not the blindness of things unseen. You can have assurance of what God is calling you to do. And you can walk in confidence in it. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit leading through the church and the gifts of the church. Building you up in the work of ministry. You can know with great joy what the work of the Spirit and will of the Spirit is for you. But I want to look at the bulk of our passage. Verse 7 through 12. The powerful helper once they get on the field. So they've gone through the whole island of Cyprus. They come to the last city, the capital of that island, Paphos, where they meet two men. There's a, one interaction singled out in all their missionary journey in Cyprus. One interaction is singled out by Luke. It says there is at the end of verse 6, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus Verse 7, he, this false prophet, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Two men highlight two very important points in the work of ministry. One, the reality of opposition. And two, there's the reality of those who would be saved. The reality of opposition is church, there is always going to be those who oppose the cross. It doesn't take long to read through the New Testament epistles to see how often Paul is dealing with false teaching. Not only Paul, Peter, Jude, James, John, all of them in their letters wrote about the reality of false teaching. As we said in, in earlier in Matthew, Jesus warned us of this in, in the parable of the wheat that was sown with the tares. Whenever the worker of God is sowing the wheat of the gospel on the mission field, guess what? The enemy is on that same field sowing tares amongst you. And that is exactly what we see right here. Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel. Sergius Paulus, a man of prominence and intelligence, wants to hear it. And who's by their side chirping in his ear? A false teacher trying to lead him away. It's interesting. This Jewish magician called himself Bar-Jesus. That literally means son of Jesus. Paul calls him, no, you're son of the devil. One of my questions tonight you can think about now is, is that harsh? Was that mean of Paul? Is there times when we have to be that frank with people? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important. The Holy Spirit, once we are ministering to people, He will help. He is a present help in identifying and dealing with false teaching and teachers. How many of you have that fear? If you were to go step outside and try to speak to people of Christ, how many of you have the fear of not knowing what to say or not knowing how to answer when someone counters you? Yeah? This passage should encourage you if you struggle with that. This passage is so important for that. So many people fail to open our mouths because we are unsure of what to say to someone who is either in unbelief or perhaps worse, they're a false teacher of one sort or another. It's true that we must be learning and growing, right? It's important for us to be gathering together. The, the Lord has given the church pastors, teachers to build us up. But you know what's even more important than that? That you are secretly in your closet being taught by the Holy Spirit Himself. That is your greatest need and that will be your greatest resource as an evangelist, as a witness to which you've been set apart to be. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Spirit of God searches the deep things of God. 
and then he reveals them to us. John said it this way in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. He says, As for you, the anointing which you have received, speaking of the Holy Spirit, from Him, He abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. I think if we're honest, most of us are scared to witness to people find ourselves in a situation like Paul and Barnabas because we haven't really invested in the Word of God. It's like a bank. If you're making deposits in the bank, when you need that cash, you have it to draw on, right? If you're not investing yourself in the Word of God now and you go out on a mission field and try and speak the Word of God to someone, it's like drawing with an empty checkbook. You're not going to be very effective. Most of us don't open our mouths because we don't have a knowledge base on which to draw from. We've got to be in the Word of God. We've got to be devoting ourselves to the teaching. If we're going to be effective as witnesses, which is the Lord's will for each and every one of us. It ties back. You see how the church never grows and never progresses because we fail to give ourselves to these disciplines. We must. We live on a diet of very thin food. However, the Holy Spirit alone holds the keys to understanding the Scripture. He alone gives us the combination of faith and study to unlock all the hidden treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. John Calvin said it this way, True discrimination between right and wrong does not depend on the acuteness of your intelligence, but on the wisdom of the Spirit. If you want to discern on a mission field between right and wrong, false and true, it's not about your intelligence or how smart you are. It's, hey, have you invested yourself in the Word of God? Yes, then the Spirit of God who lives in you will give you discernment. He will give you insight into the issues. He will teach you how to apply it in those situations. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what this passage is teaching us. The Holy Spirit, in fact, um, if you look at verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. It was not Paul's intellect. It was not Paul's wisdom. Paul was a man, and he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And because of that, he opened his mouth and could identify what was going on and call it out. The Spirit then blinds this man powerfully. It's so important to see, church. The Holy Spirit will help you in preserving the minds as well of those caught in the middle, like Sergius Paulus. He wants to hear the Word of God. He's got Paul on one side, he's got the false teacher on the other. Who do I believe? It was the Holy Spirit who overcame all those oppositions and led this man to faith. He will help you in overcoming those obstacles. We see the necessity for the Holy Spirit's wisdom, His presence in this passage. It proves what Jesus said. The mission field is difficult. You're going to face false teachers. There are going to be tares amongst the wheat. Understand this, but go nonetheless and speak. I will give you the words. Don't worry about it. Go in faith. Trust the Lord. It's the great demonstration that the Spirit of God is powerful. He is over all. He can overcome all. He wants from us obedience. He wants from us obedience. I'll end this way. David Brainerd, some of you may have heard of, 
Some consider one of the greatest missionaries that the church has ever had. He lived only to be 38 years old. He was a missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s. In fact, he was engaged to Jonathan Edwards. You've heard Jonathan Edwards' name, the great uh, preacher and revivalist of American history. Probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced. David Brainerd died on October 9, 1747, in Jonathan Edwards' house. One of his dying prayers was this, for the influence of the divine spirit to descend on ministers in a special manner. In fact, Brainerd himself was known to spend days in his closet praying, and praying so fervently that his clothes would be drenched with sweat from his pleadings. Here's what he would pray. In fact, let me actually tell you about one encounter he wrote in his own memoirs of the ministry and how it was attended with power by the Holy Spirit. Here's what he said. It was an amazing season of power among the Indians, and it seemed as though God had bowed the heavens and come down. So astonishingly prevalent was the operation upon the young and the old that it seemed as though none would be left in a secure and natural state but that God was now about to convert the entire world. How powerfully the Spirit was present in his ministry. But what was his secret? The days in the closet that he spent. His dying counsel to his brother, who was to succeed him in the ministry, was this. And listen to this. He said to his brother on his deathbed, Strive to obtain much of the grace of God's Spirit in your heart. For when ministers feel the special gracious influences of the Spirit in their hearts, it wonderfully assists them to come at the consciences of men, and as it were, to handle them. Whereas without these influences, whatever reason or speech may employ, we do but make use of stumps instead of hands. Very illustrative. How important those last words are of a dying man who knew the influence and power of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. He pled with his brother, obtain it. If you are at all going to be effective in this ministry, obtain it. Otherwise, it's like using stumps instead of your hands. Not very effective. Church, if anything in this passage, what it teaches us is the prominent role God's Spirit must play in your and my life. At every stage. The first missionary journey was all about that. He called them out, he sent them, and he was with them. We dare not do anything without that. It will fail and fail miserably. In fact, some of the greatest grievances of the church is theology taught by unspiritual people. Unspiritual people. If we are going to succeed... As Zechariah chapter 4 says, It is not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit. Take some time as, as we sing this last song to start pleading with the Lord in this. It's not a conversion necessarily, but it is a fresh feeling that you seek. We, we established that early on in in the book of Acts, we're baptized one time into the body of Christ through His Spirit, but we are filled by Him many times. And we must continually plead, Lord, I need You. I need You every hour. But when you go, 
you go in his power and not your own. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. It's been so good. It's been so good to see that you are a faithful God to your body. You call us out of the world, and yet you send us back to it. You sanctify us so as to be set apart from them. As you say, both in the Old and New Testament, come out of her and touch no unclean thing. And yet you give the church back to the world as this precious sanctified jewel to magnify your son and draw all people to yourself. The church, Paul said, has been set up in the world as a spectacle for all to gaze upon. And it is to everyone that we bring the knowledge in the name of Christ. We don't seek to convert everyone because not everyone will believe. There are always going to be Simon, the false prophet, the son of the devil. As Paul said in his epistles, there will always be those who oppose the cross. But we bring the knowledge of Christ nonetheless to every person, and you will do your work by your Spirit who attends those words of drawing those who you're calling out to be saved. So Father, we want to yield ourselves up. We want to consecrate ourselves as a church to this mission. We see in Scripture that we are called to be witnesses, each and every one of us. Father, for those here who have not yet yielded their life to your leading, I pray they deal with you now. Because if they continue in that vein, Father, they will be asked, just like Paul asked the Corinthian church, are you really in the faith? How can you be Christ and yet not given to him? How can you say you're the Lord and yet Christ is not in you? And yet, Father, it might be the case that they are your children, yet they're holding on to worldly things they need to let go of. Father, consecrate their heart. Give them grace to let go of those things and grace to see the far greater value of what you give them. And Father, for those who have given themselves and in their heart they are willing to go and do and be whatever you want them to be, Father, fill them with power. Whatever ministry you've opened up to them here in Clovis, at work, in their home, wherever it is, Father, make them effective witnesses. For we seek at Waypoint, we want new converts, Lord. We want to see people come to faith. Father, but only you, by your Spirit, working in the local church, can do that. So help us, Lord. Sanctify us, prepare us, set us apart, send us out, and be with us as we go powerfully. It's our prayer. As we're about to sing this last song, Father, we've been set free. Let us run into the freedom of Christ, not to be free to do what we want, but to be free to do what you want us to do, Lord. That's true freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name.